This episode of Fresh Ed is sponsored by the Comparative and International Education Society. On October 26th and 27th, the Society's second symposium will take place at George Mason University, where the theme will be Interrogating and Innovating Comparative and International Education Research. Today's guest on Fresh Ed will be a speaker at the symposium. If you would like to join us just outside Washington, D.C. this fall, you can find more details at freshedpodcast.com backslash 2017 symposium. Again, that is freshedpodcast.com backslash 2017 symposium. Enjoy the podcast and hope to see you at the symposium in October. This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. The CIES Symposium aims to explore new frontiers in comparative education. Today, I speak with Peter Demarath about some of the exciting work being done in ethnographic research. We discuss many ideas from indigenous knowledge to grounded grit. Peter even talks about the challenges researching the same community for over two decades, as well as the value such studies can have. The importance of ethnography in, as I was saying, capturing local creativity, especially when it comes to educational practices. Ethnography can capture and help to document the creative and innovative efforts of teachers. And I'm a person that believes that education in many societies still is run in a highly top-down manner, um, in a very directive manner. Peter Demarath is an associate professor in the Department of Organizational Leadership, Policy, and Development, and an affiliated faculty member in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Minnesota. A former middle school social studies teacher, Peter has conducted ethnographic research on schooling, student identity, and academic engagement in Papua New Guinea, and in the suburban and urban United States. He is currently president-elect of the American Anthropological Association's Council on Anthropology and Education. Peter Demarath, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thanks, Will. Great to be here with you. So when you look at the field of comparative education, what are some of the new frontiers that excite you? For me, the most exciting new frontiers are related to local and indigenous knowledge and ways that comparative education as a field um, is encompassing and including local and indigenous perspectives and local and indigenous um, conceptions of education and what education is for. Uh, Because I think one of the, if you look at the history of comparative education, in some ways, the field really has been about the spread of mass Western-style education uh, and all that comes with that. And there's a lot that comes with that. And, uh, but I think that what we're seeing more and more of that is energizing the field um, are examples of local and indigenous, indigenous knowledge and research and researchers Um, that are so, so important in terms of countering um, many of these taken-for-granted assumptions that have driven schooling and mass education for decades. So what would be an example of a taken-for-granted assumption that is being 
challenged or revealed by some local and indigenous knowledge in comparative education? So, for example, the uh, dominance of content area preparation and teacher preparation, uh, if you look at so many teacher education programs um, globally, um, it still is often content knowledge preparation that uh, predominates. Um, and of course, that's important, right? I mean, I had a teacher that told me just uh, a year ago when I was doing a study that she believed that English and literature could save young people's lives. And I thought that was an amazing thing to say, you know, and I, I think that all teachers should believe that their content area knowledge can can make a difference and can save young people's lives. But what we're learning more and more of is the importance of a more relational view to educational processes um, and that teachers, what they really need in addition to content knowledge is relational expertise. And so, for example, some of the exciting work um, that I've been looking at recently comes out of New Zealand. And so Russell Bishop, uh, his work um, on the importance of establishing Maori family-like relationships in school uh, and making schools then more welcoming to all students. And, and that work has traveled uh, even to Western Canada, to First Nations areas. Um, and so that more relational view of education grounded in indigenous and local perspectives, I think can be a very um, powerful and important counterpoint to some of those taken for granted assumptions that have driven um, mass education for quite a long time. And what do you mean by a relational view? Could you just give me a little bit more detail, you know, for someone who doesn't necessarily know what that means? Yeah, you know, we know that um, there are all kinds of other factors that uh, affect student engagement and achievement in school. And sometimes these are referred to as non-cognitive factors or character skills. And a big one, for example, is school and classroom belonging. And uh, so what then is the role of the teacher in terms of helping all students to feel like they belong in class, they're comfortable in class? And so then it's important for teachers to be able to establish um, honest and trustworthy relationships with students. And a lot of that has to do with how they show up in class and what someone like Zaretta Hammond refers to as their stance, because students students are smart, you know, they're, they're in the first several minutes of any classroom encounter at the beginning of the school year, um, figuring out how much they can trust that teacher and how much that teacher um, is going to be curious about them, how much they care about them, how much of an investment that teacher is going to make with their own emotional labor in that relationship. And so there are all kinds of levels, I think, to um, the teacher, the process of teachers establishing effective relationships with young people. So. You know, it's very interesting to think about how indigenous knowledge and local knowledge can be used and inform and drive the future directions of comparative education. Um, but I, and so I wanted to ask you, how, as a researcher, do you kind of overcome, and I'm going to take a guess here, that you were educated in, in maybe the dominant you know, forms of knowledge, not necessarily the indigenous knowledge. So how do you overcome sort of your own history to embrace this indigenous knowledge and this local uh, approaches to research? So there's a lot to overcome, I think, in terms of uh, as, a, as a comparative education researcher, as an ethnographer, there's a lot to overcome 
in being able to effectively support uh, indigenous knowledge, indigenous researchers, because of uh, the history of our fields. So a lot of it um, has to do with listening. A lot of it has to do with a more humble, situated approach to knowledge production. Um, it also has to do with, at times, getting out of the way uh, so that other voices can be heard and even, um, you know, using, uh, you know, my own position as a, as a person, as a researcher that's been a little around for a little while, um, being aware of my own positionality to support other perspectives um, that are so vital and so important um, in our field. Is that ever challenging? Oh, it's challenging a lot. Um, but I think it, when it is challenging, I think that that's a signal that you're on the right path. I mean, I believe in the conflation of comfort and power. And I believe that, um, you know, one of the reasons why change can be so slow to come um, is because people with power are unwilling to be uncomfortable. They are unwilling to embrace discomfort. Uh, and so I think this is one of the reasons why change can be slow. And it's one of the reasons also to be kind of aware of these other dimensions of um, our own decision making. Um, and one of the things that I've been learning more and more about is the, you know, the newer uh, research in sociology and anthropology of emotion and the, the role of emotion in, in um, decision making. And, and so I think that um, comfort and discomfort are actually pretty important to be aware of as, uh, as researchers. And they're not terms that you would typically hear researchers use. But um, if we're really going to um, go deep and, and be expansive um, in terms of the kinds of perspectives that um, we want to learn about and be open to and, and to support in terms of enriching our understandings of education processes globally, um, that's where I think we need to go in part. Do you have a memory or, or can you describe a moment where you felt discomfort in your role? So, for example, with my own um, journey here, um, I've been doing uh, research and development work in the same village in Papua New Guinea for over 20 years now. Uh, but I'm finding that I still make big mistakes. I still uh, encounter things that I think I understand, but I don't understand. And... Um, I think there's something about, as a researcher, you know, understanding something, there's a, you know, there's a kind of uh, hubris, a, a, almost an arrogance when we think that we actually understand something. Uh, and so more recently, my, my wife, my partner and I, we've been working with the community uh, council back in Perry Village to rebuild the Margaret Mead Community Center in the village. Uh, and it involved working with the, the local community council as well as what they refer to as the Council of Chiefs. Uh, and I found that um, I thought I had pretty good relationships with a lot of those people, um, but I found over time that I did not fully understand all of the local dynamics at play um, that were going to shape um, how the project would actually um, go and um, the, the process, the especially the political process, of ensuring that everyone involved was respected um, and that everyone involved had a say, like they think they ought to have a say. Uh, and, um, you know, there can be, for me, you know, even if you have Papua New Guinea as a sovereign state, et cetera, et cetera, but there's still dimensions of 
um, the local worlds of meanings, local worlds of meaning that um, I am still scratching the surface of um, as an anthropologist. And so it means that I need to be humble, um, but it also means that um, what helps, I think, a lot is uh, the long-term engagement uh, with people and being able to draw on our history uh, and our friendships that have evolved over time. Uh, and I think that has helped quite a bit. So in this sense, this long-term engagement, I mean, I, so I've spoke with um, some researchers like Jane Kenway, who draws on the work of uh, Marcus and to do these um, uh, multi-sided ethnographies. But Jane Kenway kind of is pushing the notion that the deep engagement in one site is not necessarily needed in ethnography, or there's other ways of thinking about it. But it sounds like what you're saying is that there there is this need for a very deep engagement to really understand these local ways of meaning making and also the local politics. So, you know, as an ethnographer, I, I, I believe that I constantly need to be able to make the case for why ethnographic knowledge is important and vital to both understand uh, educational processes and guide educational policy and practice. You know, and there are a lot of different reasons for this. One is going back to um, one of the um, objectives of the symposium and the themes of the symposium is to contribute to the decolonization of education and comparative education research. And one of the keys there, I think, is that ethnography brings is uncovering and uh, helping bring voice to local adaptation, local adaptation to social change. And, you know, one of the pieces that still sticks with me, it came out several years ago, that uh, Paul Willis wrote it. He said, look, um, as change occurs, people adapt to change in unprefigurable ways, in unprefigurable ways, which means that the only way to understand how people are responding to change is to spend time in a setting and ask questions and get to know people. Um, and that way you can begin to understand uh, local innovation and creativity. And so what that means is that you can't possibly know what variables are salient before you start out. And um, it's, it's also the rationale for a, a grounded survey, right? Um, I mean, in any kind of case study research, right, the, the strength of a grounded survey is you figure out, you spend time, and um, locally salient factors and variables um, begin to present themselves, and then you can get at um, representativeness and do some statistics. Uh, and so um, that's one thing. Another thing, though, is the importance of ethnography in, in, as I was saying, capturing local creativity, especially when it comes to educational practices. Ed, ethnography can capture and um, help to document um, the creative and innovative efforts of teachers. And I'm a person that believes that um, education in many societies still um, is run in a highly top-down manner. Um, in a very directive manner. Um, and certainly in the United States, um, this can have a corrosive effect on teachers and teacher morale and teacher motivation. 
And so that's one of the reasons why I, um, more recently as I've been writing, I, I usually mention Fred Erickson's call to conduct scaled down research. Scaled down research, we've heard about scaling up research, but scaled down research refers to research which seeks to understand local policy and practice as it unfolds on the ground in everyday practice, right? And so that's very, very important. Um, and I think it's a counterpoint to um, other kinds of research that predominate. Another example is in education research, one of the areas that I've been moving into is research on non-cognitive factors that I mentioned earlier that um, are part of the equation of student learning and academic success, academic achievement. Um, and a lot of that work in the United States has been conducted um, in the field of social psychology. Um, and so the methods have been experiment, they've been short-term interventions. Um, what I'm curious about is understanding, for example, how students can acquire components of, say, academic mindsets, things like classroom and school belonging, future orientation, resilience, grit, perseverance, confidence, how students can develop these non-cognitive factors in part through the creative and innovative efforts of teachers and staff members. Uh, and so that's the work I've been doing more recently. Um, and one of the things I've learned is that um, these teachers and staff members can have a very strong effect on young people's lives. And we're talking about high school students here. Um, and so it just shows how malleable young people can be, even through the high school years, in the secondary school years. And so what I'm trying to do there is provide a counter through ethnography uh, to many of the research traditions and research approaches that are continuing to uh, predominate. And so uh, there's, a, there's been a lot of attention in the United States recently to grit, grit or resilience. Uh, and so I'm calling this, this part of the project um, uh, the Grounded Grit Project. Grounded Grit referring to grit that is grounded in everyday practices, right? And in part is grown through the everyday practices and motivations of teachers. I should say I'm aware when I'm you know, speaking with a more comparative international audience, I did have a colleague um, here at, at, in Minnesota when I told her that it was going to be, I was thinking about calling it the Grounded Grit Project. She said, Peter, no, 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 don't do that. I was thinking about uh, sending a, uh, an abstract off to a conference in Europe, and she said, don't do that. They'll, they'll think you're talking about a dirty carpet. <laughs> but you decided to stick with the, uh, the term grounded grit. If anyone has a better idea, I'm all ears. So, but this, this idea of grounded grit and this ethnography of looking at teachers and, and their creativity uh, on the, the development of students' resilience and grit um, have you been able to, you know, uncover findings that actually, say, challenge some of the work of, I would imagine it's Heckman, who's the big one on, on grit, um, but have you found things that other researchers who are using, say, the social psychology and these experimentation methods, have, have you uncovered new ideas, new knowledge that was before this has, didn't, was not known using the other methods? Yeah, so that's what I'm in the process of writing up right now. Can you give us any uh, any hints? Oh, sure, sure. I, I think that you know one of the key things here is, in the whole process is because I'm trying to develop a model um, of a process model 
of how young people acquire these different non-cognitive factors. And so what I'm learning is that um, school and classroom belonging comes very early, right? And so, look, all over the world, you and I both know, Will, that young people have all kinds of reasons to um, disengage from school in part because it's an inhospitable place. They do not see their own experience in the world reflected back to them in school. Um, and so there are all kinds of reasons for young people to distrust an institution like school, right? It might represent he hegemony in, in various ways. Uh, and so that comes very early. But another thing that has to come early is um, sparks, which refers to student interests. And schools finding ways then to support young people in learning something and doing something that they like, and especially where they can see their efforts begin to yield uh, growth and learning and capabilities, right? Uh, and that then can lead to future orientation and future orientation. I mean, a lot of people are familiar with this going back to Nermi's work. A lot of researchers see future orientation as a gateway asset, a gateway asset. And all this, what I'm learning is it, it needs to occur in a context um, where young people believe that the adults see their potential and their capabilities. And so Carol Dweck's work on growth mindset um, is very important here. She's a psychologist in the United States who is showing through her research that the more young people see the brain as a muscle that can be developed, um, the more likely they are to engage with learning and not get frustrated. And that also then is a key part of resilience. And so the school where I did this research, it's, a, it's, it's seen as a kind of beating the odds school. It serves many students um, who come from more disadvantaged socioeconomic backgrounds, um, but it really has a remarkable um, record in terms of helping these students get on college and career pathways. And a lot of this has to do with um, the beliefs of the adults there um, and young people and their capabilities. And so a lot of these findings you learned by working with teachers, is that right? Yeah, and so this was based on, it was a part of a larger three-year study on understanding um, how schools can develop and sustain improvement-oriented culture. Uh, and so I actually started that workout as an, uh, as an evaluator. There are many people in, in comparative education that also take on roles in evaluation. Uh, and I was, be, I was able to begin to turn that towards um, understanding school culture and, and what helps a school like this um, both develop and, and sustain improvement efforts. Uh, and then the academic mindset, the GRIT study was a, a sub-study there. And and so that's, you know, one of the things I, sure, I, you know, in ethnography, we, we, we want to learn from whomever we can and whatever we can. So I spent a lot of time in staff meetings. I spent a lot of time in classrooms and, and what we call in the United States PLC meetings, professional learning communities with meetings with groups of teachers who get together and uh, try to understand factors that are affecting student achievement and they plan together. Um, a lot of time even outside of school, uh, going to, to um, uh, school events, hanging out with teachers in various places. Um, towards the end of the study, one of the senior staff members told me, um, you know, Peter, one thing that you're very good at is just sitting in a room and not saying anything. And so I, because this is a school where they're very used to outsiders coming in and telling them what to do. Um, based on very little time. And so 
I guess as a as an ethnographer, I mean, I'm try I try to see that as a compliment. Yeah, and so I mean, this would mean that you're not actively participating in these like PLC meetings, or you know, like you're just a fly on the wall observing. Yeah, and so, but I also believe as an ethnographer, you have to be a person, you know. And so I, I you know, I just don't think it's possible to go into a classroom and and just sit down in the back without having some kind of a membership role in that community, right? And so I like to say, I'm wondering if I could, if I'm going to be in a, in a classroom for several weeks, could I be a part of your classroom community for a little while, right? Um, but another part of this is, you know, I started out doing this work in, as a more, in a more evaluative role and then working through the whole researcher role, which I'm still a part of. But this is a school that also went through some really difficult times in the last year when I was doing data collection. They were struggling to implement a new inclusion policy um, that was mandated by the district, by the school district. And so that meant that all of a sudden students who before had been in self-contained classrooms due to their own special needs, also bilingual students, were now all of a sudden pushed into regular classrooms uh, in the middle of the school year. So it meant, for example, in a typical English class, you might have students that are reading at from the third grade level all the way up to the 11th grade level in one class. And, and that made it very difficult for uh, teachers. It was especially frustrating for a lot of these students who didn't have time to become socialized to the new school environment. And so uh, these students began to act out frustrations in hallways. There were all kinds of really, really difficult um, incidents, including um, uh, teachers that were assaulted and were talking about both verbally and physically. And it was just a really tough year. Um, and so I, some of the teachers went to the press um, in, the, uh, in the middle of that year, uh, and um, there was a story that came out about the school in, the, in one of our local papers that was very, very um, uh, critical of the school and its efforts to deal with this problem. It became kind of known as the hallway problem or the discipline problem. And um, but it, the, the story that came out of the paper did so in a very what I thought was a very racialized way. Um, there was a, a, a graphic on the cover of a student um, with dark complexion and a hoodie um, and some tentacles pointing uh, at the student and one had a gun. And I thought it was just very kind of sensationalized the way the reporter had gone about um, writing the story. And I was concerned because I thought it. Um, uh, it detracted attention from all the good things that were going on in the school. So, for example, the successful efforts of these, of these teachers to help young people get on college and career pathways and acquire components of academic mindsets. And so I decided to publish a counter story in another local paper. Uh, and so I didn't do the kind of, you know, the longer term analysis that I usually do as an ethnographer. I wanted to get another voice um, kind of out there. And in some ways, I was doing this both for the school, for the staff members that I believe in and I continue to believe in so deeply, but also for future parents so that future parents wouldn't lose confidence um, in this school that I thought had gotten something of an unfair hearing by that reporter in the previous story. So I published another uh, a kind of a counter narrative and it came out on, on the last day of that school year, 2015. And um, it actually, it, it had a pretty, um, I, I just got a lot of positive response uh, from that. And I think for me, in terms of my kind of journey as an ethnographer and uh, comparative educator, anthropologist of education, that's probably one of the most important things I've ever written, you know, and it was just a fairly short piece. 
Yeah, and it, I mean, it seems like how did you actually navigate that, the role between the, you know, being this researcher ethnographer in this school and, yes, trying to be human and having these human interactions with, with the people you are researching, but then that decision to, you know, be much more active in taking a stance and uh, showing your opinion so fully in, in the press. Like, how did you navigate that terrain? Because I would imagine a lot of researchers struggle with being this objective, partial researcher, but then also, you know, wanting to take a, a very political stand? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And that's, I think, one of the challenges of doing um, comparative and ethnographic research, you know, in the present day, when you're trying to both be honest about the role of your own positionality, the role of yourself, you know, the role of your own values, uh, the role of your own commitments, um, and trying to do research that is rigorous, um, that is seen as authoritative, and can have the impacts on policy and practice that you want to have. And I think that's a big challenge. And so um, I do think that, um, you know, we always need to push to do rigorous work. We need to show the hand of the ethnographer, of the researcher. We need to do work that is transparent, especially when it comes to data analysis and interpretation. But here, you know, what really compelled me to write this other piece was, you know, in part the relationships that I built up with people in the school over time. And I knew that they told me they were really hurting, you know, after this reporter wrote this other piece. And, um, and I just, you know, uh, felt deep down in myself that I wanted to uh, to respond to that as more as a person even than as a researcher. Sure. I mean, I, I talked about my, um, you know, my researcher role and, um, and the project I'd been working on. Um, but I did that. I wrote that piece in the way I did to uh, communicate in some ways out of um, felt concerns of mine, in addition to concerns as a researcher. And that's one of the things I've learned from kind of being a student of uh, public anthropology, you know, and, and how as academics, you know, we really can self-censor quite a lot. You know, we can write in very, very highly specialized languages and for our colleagues. And sometimes there's a place for that. But I think there's also a place to try to write for a broad audience, for impact. And that means forcing yourself um, and certainly for me, I, I still work on this to just be as clear as you can. Um, and so that's, you know, that for me, that's a continuing challenge. Yeah, I mean, it just must be so exhausting to have to navigate so many different worlds in a sense, right? You become so emotionally attached to what you are doing in your research and the people and the relationships that you have. But you have to also navigate this, you know, all of the ethical issues about doing research. And you then have to navigate your own politics. And I mean, I can just imagine after doing like data collection, you are just absolutely exhausted by the end of the night. Yeah, uh, sure. But also often filled up, you know, filled up in a good way, you know, with, um, you know, the stories that people have have shared with me, um, and just the humanity, you know, of, of people and just the, the, the funny things that you hear, you know, from kids, uh, from, from teachers, you know, one of the things I like to do, I'll go into a classroom. If there's a little dead time, I'll write up on the board. How funny is your teacher? Discuss. And this one student once, she just looked at me and she immediately raised her hand and she said, funny 
or cringingly funny. <laughs> so it's that kind of stuff that just, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty relational person myself. And um, that's just one of the things I love about ethnography is that, you know, look, I believe as, as humans, we are wired to learn. We are wired to learn. That's our adaptive advantage. Uh, and in ethnography and, and case study work, um, we are seeking to learn every day. You know, and, and for me, going to that school over the span of three years, I always learned something new every day, um, even though I went to, you know, an American high school. You know, I mean, um, part of this is your lens as a researcher and assuming that you don't understand things, you know, uh, as you set out. And, and again, that's letting the local um, emerge and honoring local points of view. Well, Peter Demarath, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed and, and best of luck at the symposium. Thanks a lot, Will. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed talking with you. Peter Demarath is an associate professor at the University of Minnesota. His 2009 book, Producing Success, Culture of Personal Achievement in an American High School, is now in its second printing with the University of Chicago Press. He will speak at the CIS symposium later this month. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, and Hong Zhong. Aggie Hu is Fresh Ed's social media coordinator, and original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next week.